your noses to the grindstone, day after day. You spend your work hours overworked and underappreciated, only to return home and deal with bills, landlords, and the ever-oppressive shadow of capitalism consuming you and everything you love. The horrors of capitalism are the horrors we all face, and they are confronted head-on in Proliscariot, tales of horror and class warfare. Contained within are 19 tales of capitalism gone wrong, from designer children to deadly bosses, predatory lenders to plague-ridden laborers, stories from the dark imaginations of Haley Piper, Laurel Hightower, Joanna Koch, and many more. You won't want to miss it. Proliscariot. Coming International Workers' Day, May 1st. Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not. Your laps. Welcome to Deadhead Space, now a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by the managing editor of Lit Reactor and author of The Paradox Twins, Joshua Chaplinsky. Say hi, Joshua. Hi, Joshua. <laughs> now let's uh, dive into it. What got you into horror? Diving right into it. What got me into horror? Well, I used to be really afraid of horror when i was a young child growing up i wasn't really allowed to watch r-rated movies i wasn't allowed to watch a lot of pg-rated movies i was uh, very sheltered that way so um but i always you know i would always like to get a sneak peek whenever i could but even trailers and 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 commercials on tv would scare me so i was i was pretty much a wimp and uh, I remember, as I got a little older, I basically, it, after many years of trauma, that I, I made a decision to toughen myself up and subject myself to horror and desensitize myself until I could like watch a movie with my friends without, you know, being the squeamish one and hiding or running to the closet or something like that. So it was kind of a concerted effort on my part to force myself. Because I guess I really, 
I liked horror or I wanted to like it. I just didn't have the stomach for it or didn't think I did. So I, you know, I kind of just bit the bullet and, and made myself like it. Is there one movie that stands out? Brennan, jump in after this question. Man. Sure. Uh, is there one question that's, that jumps out to you that really tattoo is tattooed in your mind as like, that's the one that fucked me up as a kid. Uh, yeah, definitely. There are a couple things, but the one major thing, and it's not even really a real horror movie, but it, it you know, at the time it was plenty horrific is, uh, Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. <laughs> the heart scene. In, yeah. Yeah. And not <laughs> even the heart scene in the movie. Cause I, I wasn't allowed to go see the movie in the movie th- theater, but I was in a second or third grade. And back then they used to make uh, these movie programs for big movies and you would and a kid got one and he brought it for show and tell and all he kept saying all he kept talking about was oh the heart you gotta see he rips out the heart the heart scene the heart scene i'm gonna show it show and tell and just the thought of that alone freaked me out so much that when it came time for show and tell and he opened up the the movie program i just stared at my lap the entire time you know, no, I think that's, you know, that's that's probably worse than actually watching it because, you you know, your your imagination is going to conjure up way worse things than, you know, 1980s Hollywood. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was it was more the, the situation was scary, you know, scarier than anything that could have been on that page. And, and it's funny because I think the kid must have noticed my reaction and he he must have been a bit of a bully because on the bus ride home, I remember sitting on the back of the bus and seeing him up towards the front. And he was kind of like looking at me and grinning and he had the magazine and he was like, yeah, going to make you look at this. And I remember we the bus stopped at my stop and I just put my head down and shut my eyes and just ran down the aisle. And this kid like grabbed me and pushed this thing in my face and tried to force me to look at it. And I just kind of like wrestled my way through and and pushed out onto the sidewalk and ran all the way home and i i I turned looked back and he had it like plastered against the back window of the bus was like yeah that's so that's pretty that's pretty funny for me it was uh, alien four resurrection and i don't know if you guys have seen it but there's this one scene where i kept hiding my head behind my cousins they're a few years older than me and I just looked up, and this alien that is terrifying, it's creepy, uh, gets sucked out of this little hole into space, chunk by chunk. Oh, and yeah. I, it's a... I couldn't eat meat for, like, a, a month or so, because I, I just, <laughs> it, it did things to me, to my little mind. <laughs> you, you must be young, that if that's your your formative scare experience. Yep. When that movie came out, I was already... An elder statesman, as far as age goes. I'm uh, I'm only 32. Oh, well, eh, not that much younger than me. I'm 44 now, I believe. Oh, okay. So. What about you, Brennan? I've never actually heard this side from you. What, how old I am? Nope. <laughs> I, I know how old you are. <laughs> Is there a movie that did, did a little uh, psychological damage when you were a kid? Yeah, um, watching Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare on my little, like, (laughs) rabbit ears TV in my room. Um, And even though it was on cable, uh, there's a scene in there 
that, you know, has always stuck with me where um, in the dream, uh, this one, this person is, is falling and Freddie wheels out a bed of nails and, you know, you just see their body in the real world just like erupt with all these tiny holes. <laughs> um, I, I'll never forget that. I like in that that's one of my favorite Freddy movies, and I, it's just funny. Uh, I like the was it Tom and Roseanne? They were in it at one point talking about how there's no kids. Oh, that's the one with Roseanne and Tom Arnold. <laughs> what a weird time in his life, man. Seriously. <laughs> now, Brendan, you got anything else on uh, Tom or Roseanne? On Ro- we- or Roseanne? No, but uh, how, how about on on Josh? Is that okay? <laughs> um, so you know, you mentioned that you kind of forced yourself to. Uh, the, the word that came to mind was exposure therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any specific memories from enduring that exposure therapy? That you know, maybe something where you were like, "This is this was a bad idea," or "This wasn't so bad." Hmm. You know, it's funny. I remember a lot of my earlier traumas with being exposed to stuff as a child and being horrified. But then when I finally got older and decided uh, I was just going to watch stuff, I I don't really remember specifically what a lot of it was. You know, it, it was even a lot of it was like even like big budget action movies that, you know, I just have. I was afraid of the sight of blood and gore and stuff. So something like Terminator 2 and Alien 3, you know, those movies were movies I really wanted to see. But I was like, oh, no, are they going to make me faint in the movie theater? And then I'm going to look like an idiot, you know? So I don't really remember what. I don't know. Eventually, there just came a point where I was like, oh, I could watch anything, you know. But in the early days, it was really kind of like you know, mainstream horror and mainstream action movies, which I look at now and they're not, you know, they're not so bad. Did, did you guys ever see Batman returns with a uh, Danny DeVito as a penguin? Yes. I don't remember this, but my dad used to tell me how when he brought me to the theater to see it, I just got out of my seat, cried and ran Ran down the aisle and up the theater. Uh, he's terrifying in that. I mean, that's a pretty dark movie, and his character especially. It's like, he bites that guy's nose. He's just blood gushing everywhere, and he's he's just so gross and slimy. And I, I watched it recently with my wife. We watched those first two Batmans over again, and uh, DeVito in the, is just so also so sleazy and sexual in that role too it's really inappropriate and off-putting and it's not remotely a kid's movie no i think that it was his like uh early stages into becoming frank reynolds for (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're right though it had this weird interplay of like i mean there's there's clowns and shit jumping all over the screen so i mean it's there's there's penguins marching around. It looks like a kid's movie, but no, there's definitely uh I was gonna say undertones, but they're not really under anything. It's it's pretty on the surface. Yeah, it's it's a pretty dark movie. Batman's my got... favorite of, of all the I like Michael Keaton. Oh yeah, I have a, I definitely have a soft spot for the original one. And watching I always liked remembered liked liking Batman Returns 
and I still like it, but rewatching it recently, I realized as an adult, I realized how ludicrous the plot is. And like, it makes no sense. Like the decisions that are being made and why things are happening. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And then you go to the, uh, George Clooney, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> so if you guys are okay with moving on to something else, um, I would love to talk about Kanye Western animator. Sure. How'd that even come up, man? Let's start there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it started as a joke, basically. Um, it was right around the time I had started writing short stories and first committed to, to, to you know, writing and uh, submitting stories. And uh, Lazy Fascist Press, may they rest in peace, had started up a... Um, he was going to start up a literary journal, uh, Cameron. And so I was like, oh, this is the perfect first venue for me to submit to. I love these guys and what they do. This, I want to be in this. But then it turned out it was going to be Lovecraftian themed, mm. which especially at the time, I, I didn't really know a lot about Lovecraft. I had seen the movie Reanimator and loved the movie, and I had probably read the story it was based on. But other than that, I really wasn't familiar. So I, uh, I was looking down a list of all Lovecraft's short stories and kind of just see if anything would jog my mind and give me, uh, inspire me to write a short story about. And then I came down to Herbert West Reanimator, and it was really just a kind of like free association thing where I went, Herbert West, Kanye West. Herbert West, <laughs> Kanye West. And then I was like, what if I just did a search and replace for every instance of Herbert in the story and changed it to Kanye? <laughs> and so I did that and then I read it and I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. It actually works pretty well in a lot of places. What if I tinker with it some more and make it really fit? And so I, I started working on it and doing a little research because I hadn't really been a big Kanye fan and didn't really know a lot about his life. So I started to do some research and then really kind of applying that to the, the story of Herbert West Reanimator. And, and I honestly, I just began to see these parallels between the two characters and I, I, you know, in the end, I think it wound up working really well because it's basically two, you know, like megalomaniacal geniuses who'll stop at nothing to achieve, you know, their art or their science, you know, then they just, they're so myopic in their vision of just achieving their goals. And it's, it's kind of amazing how similar they wound up being. I've never thought of Kanye West and all those. That's great. That's that's something to think about. Um, for Herbert West, the reanimator, that's that's a great story. I read that when I first got into Lovecraft, and that's one of the few where Lovecraft really dives into character development <laughs> for for Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Um, I is this <laughs> looking at like the the quotes, and there's one from a. Uh, Chuck Polinick and he says, "Yep, this is a thing, and it's really good." <laughs> is, that a real, is that a real quote from him? Uh, no, not exactly. I, I'm not sure where you're reading it from, but in other places, uh, I, Amazon. 
in other places, I kind of framed that quote as it's a, the guy who wrote the guy who runs Chuck Polinick's Twitter, basically. Like it said, like Chuck Polinick, and then kind of like in parentheses to the side, like in front, it was like the guy who runs, and then Chuck Polinick, and then after that, his Twitter. I see. It. Basically, it, it was my friend Dennis who runs their website, Chuck net and runs Chuck's social media. And so it was Dennis kind of giving me a good word in Chuck's voice. <laughs> so I thought it would be funny. I didn't want to use it outright saying it was actually Chuck saying it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I kind of made a little joke out of it. So Chuck did not actually say that. That's hilarious. Brian, take us away. I'm just wondering what kind of legal issues there are with uh, inserting a uh, Kanye West into a story like that. Did, did you have to like do research on that? What did you find out? Uh, I mean, a little bit. I, there was a little concern of that, despite what the laws are, if he really wanted to sue us and make life hard for us, he could have because he's super rich and he could have done that. But otherwise, uh, the the Lovecraft story is, was in public domain, and then the rest of it would just qualify as a parody, I believe. So, I, pretty much, I think we were in the clear. And there was even a while where I kind of like courted his wrath, where I was tweeting at him and stuff, and trying to get him to notice <laughs> and then make it stink. But yeah. Um, Cameron Pierce, who who used to run Lazy Fascist Press, he he put the book out initially, and he kind of like made a new little imprint for it, partially because I think he didn't want it connected to Lazy Fascist, just in case there were legal issues. You know, he didn't want to take take them down. With, you know, he didn't want us to take them down with us. Yeah, no, I, but, I don't know much about it in detail, but I know that um, the laws regarding, you know, satire and parody uh, are relatively gray. So <laughs> use yeah. them to your advantage. Exactly. But like I said, if he wanted to make trouble, I'm sure he could have. South Park now, probably would have made a sequel episode to Kanye West if that got big enough. Oh, yeah, that would have been... <laughs> That would have been good for me. Yeah. Is, is that Jay-Z's head? Yeah, that's poor Jay-Z. <laughs> poor Jay-Z. How'd you get into Lit Reactor, man? Like, tell, tell us all about that. For those that don't know Lit Reactor, what it is, and how did all of it come about? Well, uh, Lit Reactor is basically a literary website it's for uh literary enthusiasts and and writers and people who love to read it kind of encompasses all those things just everything great about literature and books and writing uh you know we got we got classes from industry professionals and published authors uh we had forums for a time until they got overrun with spam and now they no longer exist and we have the the, the magazine or the blog portion, which is my main area of focus, and uh, which I edit, and we post, you know, for the most part every day, articles on everything from 
you know, the basics of grammar to all sorts of stuff to do with writing, whether it's plot or characterization, you know, genre stuff, just, a, you know, book lists, uh, author interviews, just, you know, anything to do with reading and writing, basically. And uh, it's been, we're closing in on our 10 year anniversary, I think this year, actually 2021 in October is going to be our 10 year anniversary. So we might try to plan some things, but it started basically my, again, my aforementioned friend, Dennis, he was uh, the webmaster of chuckpolinick.net. And at one point they were doing classes and stuff over there. And then he decided him and his partner at the time decided to kind of branch out and separate all that stuff from Chuck's website and and form a website, you know, solely dedicated to writers and reading. And, uh, you know, since I was, you know, I was there from the beginning, I was a friend of his, uh, you know, I, I just was there on it, got lucky I was there on the ground floor and I've been with them ever since. Congrats on the 10 year, almost 10 years. That's, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, Lead Reactor, if you're in the, seeing we are in you should probably know who they are you guys are all over the place yeah we're around you know i think we've done done okay for ourselves i'm you know i'm happy with it i'm it's something i still enjoy doing you know i'm on the site doing something on it almost every day and you know i i just mainly do it because i like it so that's great um how did your friend get hooked up with chuck <laughs> Uh, that's a, an interesting story is, um, we used to work at a bookstore together, B. Dalton books in the Roosevelt field mall on Long Island. That's how we met. And, um, it was around that time fight club came out and we both read fight club and it, we were just like blew our minds. We were like, this is the greatest thing we've ever written. What else is this <laughs> that guy got? You know, like we've never read a book like this. You know, we were like, you know, both like. 21 22 something like that and then shortly thereafter survivor had come out and we were just like oh my god this guy's the best we love it you know this is this is just it's too good and so then we were like we got to see him we got to see him in person whenever he's in new york next we got to see him read so i believe it was around that time or around when invisible monsters came out he did a reading in new york and we went to see him and there was like nobody there. This was before Fight Club the movie came out and it became a huge thing. And it was like, it was really so few people. So we just, when it was over, we just walked right up to him and started talking. And it's funny, my, my friend Dennis, and, and this is in like the very nascent years of the internet where like I didn't even have a computer yet. And my friend was like the first person I knew who had a computer and it was a big deal. And we'd all go over in his house and like, you know, look up rotten.com or whatever, you know, just like (laughs) the first thing you do is you get a a computer and you're like search, you know, horse sex or something crazy. But anyway, so we go, we go see Chuck and he's like, we're all like, you know, gushing and fawning. And, and my friend's just like, I'm going to make a website dedicated to you. And Chuck was just kind of like, gave him this, amused smile and it was just like sure kid whatever you say 
And then like that night he went home and started working on it. And like he, you know, he, he, to his credit, he really did it and he kept at it. And then eventually it be, you know, by association, it became Chuck's official website and, and the publisher, you know, kind of adopted it as the official website. So he was doing that for years, but it was just basically because we were big fans and he, you know, he, he put himself out there and was just like, Hey buddy, I like what you do and I'm going to do a website. That's awesome. <laughs> Brendan, I, I want to hear what you're thinking right now. Is it so that, uh, I'm going to talk so you can Google horse sex. No, <laughs> that's for after the episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for saving that. So, you know, you said you're working on lit reactor stuff pretty much daily as the managing editor. What is that? What does the day to day look like? Uh, you know, um, it's just, I handle the, 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 the scheduling and the, the gathering of pitches and, and the posting and the proofreading and, you know, the artwork. And I mean, basically anything to do with posting and, and generating the articles. So it's, uh, you know, we, we schedule a month at a time. We have like a stable of writers. I put out a monthly call for pitches, everybody pitches. I choose what I like. And then, you know, I make a calendar for the month. We try to stick to the calendar, but you know how writers are. It doesn't really work that way, but <laughs> for the most part, they're good, and for the most part, we stay on schedule. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. What I, goes I, into? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, nah, just I was just gonna say it's hard to believe. I've been doing it for almost ten years, day in, day out. Yeah. What goes into selecting pitches? You know, how much of you know, getting a good variety, you know, uh, looking at the names that are behind the pitches, um, you know, what interests you versus what you think will interest uh, visitors to the site. Yeah, I mean, especially in the beginning, we used to really hem and haw over stuff and be like, we need this percentage of this type of pitch and this percentage of this, and then this will appeal to this demographic and we got to spread them out. So this, these articles that are kind of similar can't be too close to each other. You know, you can't have two reviews in the same week and all, you know, but at this point, it's just, it's just more of, I guess it's just more of a second nature. It's kind of a, by feel like it's just whatever kind of, tickles me at the moment you know I, I, do, I do try to keep it a variety which is you know it's gotten harder after 10 years because uh, a lot of times especially when you got new writers you kind of get pitched very familiar sounding articles you know so it, it's it's hard after 10 years to to keep publishing you know really unique ideas and voices but I got to say, you know, they do a pretty good job. And uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I still kind of subconsciously take all that stuff into account. But I think ultimately it's just now I, I don't think too hard about it. I just kind of look at it and I'm like, yep, nope, yep, maybe change this. Yeah, let's try this. Why not? Oh, I need space. So I'll say yes to that no matter what it is. You know, that kind of thing. That yeah, makes sense. 
It's uh, funny that it's kind of garnered that reputation over the last 10 years where it's, you know, a place to turn to for, you know, legitimate reviews and, you know, tr- trusted reviews, let's say. Um, good, you know, writing tips and things like that. But also, you know, articles by Gabino Iglesias about writers who can go fuck themselves and whatever weird <laughs> shit Max Booth turned up this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just the, the collective variety there is interesting. Yeah, I and I guess too that definitely I would say reflects on me and my sensibilities because I know my friend Dennis, especially in the in the early on, we used to do the pitches and the scheduling together, and then it's, as time went on, I kind of just took more and more of it over until he kind of just was like, "Ah, oh, you know, you you got this. You take care of it." And I definitely tend to say yes to some of the more out there or weird ideas and sometimes it's come back to bite me in the ass and usually involves max booth um (laughs) there's been that's not surprising (laughs) there has been more than one occasion where max max pitches something and in the back of my head i'm like ah but then i i find myself being like yes i like it and then when i get the article and read it i'm like oh, no, no, why did I say yes to this? I can't possibly. And then I already knowing the answer, uh, you know, I'll show it to Dennis, and I'll be like, Dennis, what do you think? And he'll just be like, no. And then after a while, I kind of learned the type of articles that Dennis would look at and just be like a flat no to. And then, yeah, I started avoiding those. What um is there any stories of Max's that you can share with us? Uh oh, if I could remember. I definitely remember he wrote uh one thing he he wrote that I didn't even go to Dennis on this. I just once I saw it I said no. Even though when he pitched it and told me exactly what it was, I was like, Oh yeah, that sounds funny. It was it had something to do with like Pennywise memes, but like people who really sexualize the new Pennywise. And so then Max had made all these bizarre memes with pictures of Pennywise and about like wanting to drink Pennywise's jizz and all, all crazy, <laughs> like really kind of gross, crazy stuff. And like, you know, if he makes one or two of those jokes in an article, I kind of let it slide. But like, this was seriously 2,000 words of gargling pennywise jizz jokes and i was like matt max i'll pay you because i made you do the work but i was like i'm not publishing this you and know so what then he went and he published it on his own website i think so he, he got paid and and he put it on his own website for free when we had max on last season somehow we got on the conversation of it and uh Children's circle jerks. It was pretty jarring to get to that place. Well, you you know, it was within the first like four minutes of the episode, too. (laughs) It's obviously a a problem with him. (laughs) Let's not explore this any further. I regret, yet I am entertained at the same time with that answer. Um, I just want to say before we get off track that this was accidental, but I think it's kind of funny that your episode is right next to Chuck's um, because chronologically yours comes after, but recording wise, Aaron wise, it comes after recording wise. We're recording with him tomorrow. 
Um, nice. And I'm right there with you, man. Like, I, I've read four of his books in the last two weeks, and I'm like, I told Brian, I'm like, I, I'm going to come back to this, but I got to take a chill pill right now because this is, this is fucking with my head on some weird levels. His writing's so different, man. You just yeah. want to keep reading. Yeah, I mean, when I first started reading his stuff, I had, I didn't realize, you know, writing could be so, like, not necessarily dangerous, but just like, like, he just, the amount of ideas he packed into one slim book, that's really what connected with me. Just like all the research and the insane details, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was, you know, kind of just like a barrage of mental overload and just it really like jazzed you up, you know? Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I, I got through haunted a couple days ago. And, uh, for those who don't know, there's a short story in there called Guts. Uh, Everybody knows, man. <laughs> Everybody knows. That we, saw, we saw him read it live once where a kid screamed and then passed out on the floor. Or he, <laughs> he fainted and then he woke up screaming. One of those. Which was, <laughs> it was pretty unnerving. And we, we kind of knew it was coming because it had already been happening. And like... It was still pretty unnerving to to be there. We, we were like three chairs down from this kid. Like I don't know how you two feel hearing it. It's funny to me, but being there, I'm pretty sure I'd be very uh, unsure how to react and a little weirded out. Matt, how how would you feel if you wrote something and that's the reaction you get from multiple people? Oh me, I mean, I mean, I guess from. Uh, a, uh, a promotional point of view, it was great for him and that story because it became a huge thing. And it was like a, a running count of something like, like a hundred people in a row or something like every reading he did, like some more than one person fainted. And it's just, it kind of is amazing. It just goes to show how ideas could just get inside people's heads. You know, I think after a while it, it became people work themselves up so much and they're like almost like me with the indiana jones and the the movie book of the picture of kali ma to pulling out the heart it was more the idea of the picture and freaking me out and i and i was like what's gonna happen to me when i see it i think that's what got into people's heads they're like oh my god this story is so freaky and so gross I'm not going to be able to control myself. What if I'm the person who passes out and then they psych themselves up and they get there and it, it's, you know, and it happens. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Reminds yeah, me of, you know, Pat, go ahead. I was just going to make a quick joke again about South Park, but it's relatable. Uh, when the kids wrote Scotty Mick, uh, booger nuts, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> the reaction was everyone threw up. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of on the same level with Chuck, the real life version. Go ahead, Brennan. I, you know, I was just going to say, you, you know, you asked Josh, but I'll, I'm going to answer it too. I, I don't know that I'd want to write that exact story cause it's just so fucking gross. <laughs> but, um, imagine, you know, just imagine having that, you know, I can't think of a better word than power to write something so visceral, uh, visceral that you know you get a consistent audience reaction like that you know that's that's crazy 
you know, to, yeah. to write something that impacts, you know, such a wide group uh, on such a deep level. So, yeah, and I don't know that I'd want to write that exact story, but man, I, I would love to create something that hits that hard. Yeah, it must just be immensely gratifying to know, like, your words have that much power. Do you guys remember when uh, the there was a few teenagers that killed a girl, stabbed her over the Slender Man, the creepy mm-hmm. pasta character? So my wife and I, um, I don't remember when that was, but she asked me, she's like, well, how, what would you do if something you wrote had that kind of reaction? And I go, I don't know what I'd say publicly, but I'd still keep, I mean, I wouldn't, I feel awful, but I mean, you can't control how people react to it. That's a, that's a thing. You never, you could love something and your friends could love it, but you don't know how the public's going to react. It's true. I mean, you know, just look at there, you know, of course I probably can't think of a specific one now, but there are examples of, people who claim they were influenced by certain things to do awful things. And, you know, some are the types of things you would expect like heavy metal and, and horror movies and stuff like that. But sometimes it's, it's, you know, just some innocuous thing. Like some guy could be like, I watched the Care Bears every day when I was a kid and that's why I murder, you know, it's like, you never know what's going to set someone off. Oh, Helter Skelter, the Beatles. That's the first yeah, thing that comes yeah. to mind with the Manson, Charles Manson, or uh, yeah, video games with kid uh, school shootings. That was a big thing. That was before there was a rain system. Like Mortal Kombat was like a big, uh, big thing back then, and Doom. Um, before there was a rain system for that. Um, I I don't know, man. I I kind of, which is interesting. I kind of see vocal people online very opinionated on what is okay and what's not okay and i'm part of me wonders if that would ever become an issue on you know the supreme court level it sounds crazy but i'm sure people that played video games back in the early 90s didn't think it would happen Mm. like what if there's a ring system for books there isn't that i'm aware but there is for other art forms yeah i don't know that would be that would be weird yeah i mean I, i definitely think it would upset a lot of people but you know what? I mean, if you look at now, though, there's the whole thing with with trigger warnings, and especially within like the horror community, it's a big discussion, mm-hmm. and not necessarily like regulating and having a system where you know you force writers to put trigger warnings in their books. Uh, I don't think most people don't think it should be a mandatory thing, but a lot of people and a lot of like extreme horror writers agree that you know maybe it's it's like a kind of a a nice thing or a humane thing to do and like you know what what does it hurt me if i you know i just put this warning in my book you know yeah just to prevent the wrong person from reading it or whatever because it's really not hurting anything you know mm-hmm. so as i as long as i kind of agree as long as no one's forcing you to do it. Like, I don't, I don't think you should have to do it, but you know, there are plenty of horror writers who feel compelled to do it. And that's totally cool too. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to jump over to the paradox twins? Sure. Brian, lead the way, sir. 
Well, you know, usually if we're having somebody uh, promote a book that's just coming out, most of the people listening to the episode haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, you know, we, we like to put it on your shoulders to give us the synopsis so that we don't give away a bunch of stuff you don't want us to give away. Okay. Uh, well, basically, uh, the Paradox Twins is the story of estranged identical twin brothers who reunite at their father's funeral to discover they no longer really look alike. And then that's kind of the, the, uh, the impetus for the, the whole story. And, uh, the one brother is, you know, aside from not looking quite so alike anymore, you know, the one brother is kind of a, uh, a successful writer of, uh, YA science fiction, and the other brother's a high school physics teacher uh, living on his own, you know, and it's they they kind of reconvene to put their father's um, uh, estate to rest or take to care of their father's affairs and begins dredging up all sorts of, you know, old sibling rivalries and things from the past and. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the basic, the very basic gist of it, which doesn't make it sound remotely horror or remotely genre at all. And it really isn't a horror novel per se, although there are elements of horror in it. It, um, I would say it definitely has a lot more, uh, science fiction elements to it when it comes to genre and a lot of that too is is very kind of like based on real world science as opposed to like you know intergalactic space travel and stuff like that mm. um just the the title itself the paradox twins uh, comes from a famous thought experiment in uh, special relativity where if you take uh identical twins and you put one in a rocket ship and send them on a a, a journey on near a, near the speed of light that you'll find that one twin will have aged differently than the other and so then i kind of use that that becomes a metaphor for the whole thing of the brother separation and and their differences and blah 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 <laughs> Now, see, this is this is why we have we have the author, you know, give the synopsis, because if I tried to stumble over explaining to somebody, you know, what it's about and why they should read it, it's it's tough to do because it's it's you wrote it in a way that it kind of has to be the story has to be experienced rather than explained. So is this kind of your first foray into that uh, epistolary nature? Um. I mean, definitely in in this large a project. I mean, I do have a couple of short stories that I would call epistolary, and it, it it's it is a device I like. I I like using different forms and formatting, you know, in general, just because I feel like I don't know. You just kind of get bored writing the same type of story, not the same type, but like using the same kind of structures of storytelling over and over you know i just like you know every time i see a story that has some weird quirk like it's 
it's written, you know, it's, you know, it, it's written like excerpts from different magazines or the Dennis Cooper had one that was like, a, it was like a, back when mes- message boards were like the biggest thing on the internet. Like it was all interactions on a message board and stuff like that. So I always enjoyed stories that use that sort of thing, use different formats to, to tell their story. House of yeah. Leaves comes to mind. Yeah, that I mean, that's definitely the big one, the big touchstone. And I'm not going to lie, a, big, a very big influence because I'm a huge fan of House of Leaves. Mm. And uh, yeah, I just, that book especially, it, it did it, it messed with the form so well, but it was still had such a, had such well-drawn characters, you know, and, and so much emotion to it that the kind of, the bells and whistles didn't override everything else. They actually enhanced the story. Yeah. And I, you know, I loved the thematic nature of, we, we get, you know, different looks, we get, you know, um, coroner's reports and, and, and little bits and pieces but the main three things are these narratives told by the three main characters. And, you know, you kind of establish early on that, you know, when, you, when you're when looking at a story from, you know, the different viewpoints, and uh, I'm going to botch it. You, you said there's three ways to look at a story. What are they again? Oh, there's three. It's an old saying. There's three sides to every story. Yours, mine, and the truth. Yeah. So we get, you know, the the viewpoints of, you know, the the returned writer who's trying to turn this into like uh, almost like a dramatic screenplay. Um, We've got the neighbor who's kind of the almost the outside looking in on this relationship between the two brothers and then um, and then Alan's point of view, which kind of comes across as the most grounded. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, what kind of ties it all together is the uh, notes from the narrator, who I believe is named Joshua Shaplinsky, um, and kind of adds this almost like smart ass tinge to it. I just I, I kept thinking of like the Ron Howard's voiceovers from Arrested Development whenever <laughs> the narrator would poke their head in. Um, how was that always a consideration? You adding your voice into the story and not just as like an introduction? Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, the, the long, the, the short version of the story is this started, the Paradox Twins started out as a screenplay I had written. Um, I, I've been really into screenwriting for a long time, for about a period of 10 years. I wanted to be a screenwriter and that's the only real writing I did was screenwriting. And then eventually I, I got bored of nobody ever reading anything i wrote so i decided i you know i wanted to try my hand at writing some short fiction and then you know maybe eventually novels and uh so when i came you know i started writing and publishing some short stories and really enjoying it and then when i i started to think about writing a novel it it felt really daunting and then uh, you know i thought about some of these screenplays I had written and I was like, 
you know, in some cases, these are years of work, you know, and, and all that work is there, like the hard parts too, like the, the characterization and like the, the structuring and, and, the and the plot is like, I could take one of these and basically just flesh it out a bit, put some descriptions, put a little meat on the bones. And that would just be a much easier way to write a novel than from scratch, you know? So that's how the, the paradox twins started. And so of course, uh, screenplay format is very different from writing a novel and certain things didn't exist in the screenplay, like the, the character of the, the narrator who it, one of his names is Joshua Chaplinsky and the footnotes and stuff like that, that didn't, uh, exist in the screenplay. So when I was, um, the screenplay was more of, they had different points of views of different characters, but there was no conceit like, oh, this is from this book that this character wrote, and this is from this book that this character wrote. It's just basically, you know, would cut between scenes, and certain scenes had one character as a focus, certain scenes had another. So when I, I, I started adapting it into a novel, I came up with the idea of each of these characters having written some sort of book, whether it was a memoir or like thinly veiled piece of fiction. And that's where their points of view would come from that I would switch back and forth between these different books they had written. And that kind of satisfied my, my penchant for like weird kind of like formatting and structure stuff, you know, kind of like a la like house of leaves where it's about, about a movie about a book about a movie that might not exist whatever a guy found in the trunk um but then i thought i needed a reason i needed a reason for that to exist because it's cool to be like yeah this is a book made up of these three other books that are like if you tore chapters out and put them together in a random order or something you know that doesn't really make sense that really wouldn't exist so i i kind of needed a reason why this book would exist in that form and that's kind of when i came up with the idea of the the narrator in the footnotes as someone who kind of was obsessed with this family and their story and curated his own version of their story because Ultimately, the the whole book is about, you know, like you were saying, different points of view, different perspectives. And you got Alan and, and Max each have a different version of the story, and Millie has her own account. But then you got this kind of narrator overseeing the whole thing, and he's hand-picking different parts from each account and putting them together to his liking to make the story he wants to read. So I guess... you that was kind of an epiphany for me or that's to me, that's what made the formatting work in the end when I finally got to that point. Now you're, you're, I just want to come in here real quick. Um, you're clearly into, you know, mix of horror and sci-fi. Is there any filmmaker or movie or movies that, not even inspired this book, but that you really gravitate towards, that you really love, and you kind of have a replacing your art forever. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, probably like my f- my first film love was David Lynch, and he probably still is just one of my favorite directors of all time. I just just something about what he does, the nature of what he does, really speaks to me, and uh, I definitely feel like it has influenced me, and even in my writing, and even in things that aren't necessarily obviously as weird as what he does you know just i mean just the fact i mean the paradox twins has twins in it and you know a lot of david lynch stuff is he's obsessed with doubles and doppelgangers and like i could you know i i see that that's where that comes from you know so he's definitely that's definitely a big influence for me from the film world probably the, the number one influence i'd say that's solid choice. All right, uh, Brian. Yeah, I was going to ask, what steps did you when you were, you know, kind of composing the three viewpoints and the three um, memoirs, books, what have you? What steps did you take to kind of make sure they would have uh, unique voices? Yeah, that was. I mean, that was definitely something I was concerned with, and uh, you know, I. I I wanted to make sure that they didn't all sound exactly alike. And I, I, I did come up with a few little, you know, a little system, a few tricks to kind of differentiate them as much as I could. Um, they're not all in the same tense. Um, I think two were in first person. Two were in first person. I'm not sure if I forget now if they're both in first person past tense or not, but then there's one that's in third person present tense. So I kind of, you know, as far as the, the POVs go, I, the, I just messed around with that. But then I also made little, I almost like drawing up little like character bios for each of the main characters, just a little bit about their personalities and their background and how it, it would affect how they spoke. And, you know, I impose certain rules like oh, this character wouldn't use contractions at all. You know, they would say, I cannot, they would never say I can't. And, uh, the, the young girl, Millicent, you know, she would, she would use a lot more adverbs than the other guys. Cause you know, to me, that's kind of indicative of more of a, a younger voice, so there were a couple little things like that I did to give each section, like, you know, maybe even if it's not something the reader sees on the surface, just kind of these, this subconscious rules within it that would give each one their kind of unique familiarity, I guess you could say. Who, um, who came up with this cover and real quick audio, listeners i'm holding up cover it's gorgeous i think and you know what man i don't know how you're gonna take this but i very much i mean this as a compliment it's pretty it's a really neat book it's all pink i don't think i have really any books that are different shades of pink so yeah um tell us all you can about it please yeah i mean the cover artist is matthew revert who uh he's he's done tons of indie book covers and if you've spent any time reading like indie horror or indie genre stuff, you've probably 
come across a lot of his work and would probably come to recognize it. He's got a very unique style. I think he's got a, a great design sense overall. And, and I am personally a huge fan of what he does. And so, you know, even before he did any of my book covers and when it came time for my books to have covers, I, you know, he was the only person I wanted. And so, I mean, the, the cover for the paradox twins, uh, I mean, I love it. I'm, I'm so happy with it. I think he did an amazing job. I love the pink of it. Like that was immediately when everybody saw, saw the pink, they were like, yes, this is, it's, it's great. It works so well. So uh, I'm, I'm super happy with it. And it, I mean, he, he killed it. It was just like, I remember he did one, he only did one other, um, you know, cover idea to show us. And I really liked it, but it was definitely more like, like art design kind of just like kind of nerdy design looking, you know, and, and I loved it aesthetically, but Christoph and Lisa, Lisa from clash were kind of, they wanted something that had was a little more like iconic makes, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying it's like, you know, my book is iconic or whatever, but like, you know, something striking that stood out and memorable and then, you know, the idea was, you know, what about the character of the spaceman? Like, I feel like just like a guy in like a, you know, a spacesuit, like, you know, from 2001 or whatever, like that's, that's a really cool image you could use. And I think like two days later, he came back with this and he was like, yeah, I had this really cool picture of an astronaut lying around. I've been waiting to use it on something. And it was just like, we were all like, perfect. This is it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you mentioned Clash. How did uh, that relationship come about? Um, the, uh, Christoph and Lisa invited me to come hang out with them at the Brooklyn Book Fair one year. Um, we'd really never met. I guess we just interacted online. And uh, they had just started up Clash at the time. And, you know, I, I live in Queens. And at the time, they lived here in new york still i believe and i don't know they just invited me to come i had kanye west reanimator at the time and they were like come hang out at our table you could sell some books or whatever and i went and i hung out with them and, and you know we just kind of hit it off and christoph and lisa asked me if i was working on anything and i remember the first the i, I went to multiple brooklyn book fests with them and the first one i was kind of like ah I have some ideas, but I don't think I'm really into writing a novel at this point. And then the next year, I was kind of like, well, I have this screenplay I'm kind of tinkering with, turning into a novel to see how that goes. And then I kind of like pitched them a little bit on it and told them the basic story of it. And they were like, you know, if, if you write that, we're interested in it. And so that kind of, that gave me a little more drive to actually do it. I was like, well, these guys are interested. Maybe I should write it, you know? And it took me a while to actually finish it and then get around to actually putting it out. And they, they put out my short story collection first. But yeah, that's just basically how I met those guys just hanging out at the book fair. 
That's cool, man. We're going to have them on uh, next Wednesday. Really excited to talk to them. Yeah, I mean, they're doing such such exciting stuff. I've mentioned Lazy Fascist a couple times, and I uh, that was a press I loved just for the, like, the the diversity of the the stuff they put out just the weird stuff no one else was doing and the the authors they were publishing and i feel like clash is almost like a spiritual successor to what they were doing i mean they're even putting out new releases by some of the same authors and they're just like kind of fearlessly putting out just like all these different things from like just weird books of poetry poetry about video games about sports poetry poetry about barns then to like they got a a book on ska that's coming out that's like people are going crazy for and it's selling it's like pre-selling hundreds of copies which for a small press is insane and then you know they're publishing all sorts of weird you know, sci-fi and horror stuff and some nonfiction and like just a lot of cool, like fringe voices. Like they're just, they're just kind of, they're doing such cool stuff. And it, it almost seems, you know, like sporadic, but it's just, I don't know. There's no cohesiveness to the whole thing. Yeah, and they got the uh, that magazine. What was it quarterly magazine attached to the uh, public uh, to the Clash books? Uh, it's Black Telephone. Yeah, I don't. I'm kind of throwing that out there. I don't know if it's connected. I know it's ran by. Uh, I'm gonna mess up her name. I've never actually said it out loud, and I heard you say it a few times, and I forget how to pronounce it. Lisa. 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 Lisa okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, she runs runs yeah, it. Black Telephone. It's like there. Dark witchy poetry journal nice um hey if you want to move on i would love to dive into your music man because that's that's uh, fun stuff to listen to oh yeah sure sure what uh i mean i'm not really doing a ton of music these days just your history uh, I, I, I think it's a little sorry go ahead yeah, I mean, just, you know, growing up in my 20s and stuff, I was into punk and hardcore and playing in a bunch of bands. And for a long time, I thought I was going to be a rock star. And, you know, we're in bands that we bought bought a van and drove across the country going on tour and playing in VFW halls and, and kids' basements and stuff. And, yeah, that, I mean, it, that was a fun time in my life. But it's 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 been a while since I've played in a band seriously. What uh, what about all the CDs you got posted on your site? Well, not all two, the two albums. Oh yeah, th- I mean those are two albums I made with two two of the bands I was in that kind of were the most serious or lasted the longest. One is a uh, band, Last Days of August, which I guess you would describe as an emo band. Um, but not emo kind of as a lot of people know as it came to be which was basically just like goths making pop punk it it was more kind of I was really into like the midwestern emo thing which was bands like uh, Mineral and, and Promise Ring and Christy from Drive and bands probably a lot of people never heard of 
and even like a band like sunny day real estate like that was that was like what i was into when we were in that band but then i had a second guitarist whose favorite band was guns and roses so that kind of snuck in there a little and, and and clashed a little bit but yeah that was uh that was probably a, oh about 20 years ago so that's a long time ago and uh then after that i i, I was in another band the last serious band i was in which probably broke up maybe like eight years ago or so it was this mm. band speed 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 and that was more of a it's just kind of like punkish hard driving rock thing kind of a little bit of fugazi uh at the drive-in kind of thing a little clutch some guns and roses again mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know that that sort of thing so yeah i mean i got i keep those up there for posterity you know, it, it, I think it's interesting, you know, you, you, even though that's not my main focus anymore, people stop by and they're like, oh, check it out. You know, it's just a another another facet of my story, I suppose. Bernie, you got anything to add to that? No, not really. I just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, all the great variety of bands I played in from like my mid-teens to... Uh, I haven't played in a band in 10 years. I'm too old and uncool and tired, but, um, exactly. That's yeah. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and I, and I've got all those recordings floating around someplace. You, you are a braver man than I, because I don't think I could, uh, post those for the public to hear, (laughs) um, for, um, you know, that, that, and so much of it, and I'll speak just for me. It was, I love this album and you know, this band is going to be to recreate this album. You know, you'd the, the influences were so, uh, you know, kind of on the tip of your tongue. Um, but damn, it was fun playing shows back then, um, in church yeah, basements and all that good stuff. Yeah. It was a great feeling, a great time. And yeah. And you said it, I'm just too old now and, don't have the time or the energy and uh, let you know let's be honest it's getting along with a group of five people creatively is not easy you know so at least you know writing is easier because it's just you you don't know it's not like making art by committee you know when you're in a band it's like we used to say it was like having four or five wives <laughs> yeah. it's just like that's what the dynamic became like but uh, what I wanted to say, though, so I haven't really made much music seriously lately, although I have from time to time, uh, I have them up on SoundCloud. I've recorded a handful of covers of what I, I like to think is questionably sexual songs. And I, I try to kind of like really twist them and make them not sound like the original um one of them is a uh, rough boys by pete townsend i don't know if you're familiar with that song but it's just a rocking song about a dude wanting to bite and kiss some boys wearing leather jackets and in the pool hall and uh so i got that one that sounds inappropriate it sounds like something max booth would talk about yeah it's a little the song's a little inappropriate but um <laughs> it, it's just so rock it's so rocking yeah 
and then uh, I did um, oh, I did a cover of Pink by Aerosmith, <laughs> which is one of the I feel one of the worst songs lyrically ever written. It's just so gross and weird that I had to cover it myself. And then, uh, and then I also did, uh, and you might, there might be sensing a theme here. Uh, I covered this LL Cool J song called Pink Cookies in a Plastic Bag Being Crushed by Buildings, which is a euphemism for something for what no one really knows. In interviews, LL Cool J can't even explain what it means. <laughs> but it, it's a weird gross sexual song and uh yeah it something about it spoke to me and i had to do it it's not very catchy that title no it's it's very cumbersome <laughs> uh so i you brought up pete townsend townsend and uh i saw the who in uh 2013 doing like the 30th or 40th anniversary of the quadrophenia album mm-hmm. I, I mean those guys are in the seventies rocking out. Roger Daughtry was awesome. I thought it was fantastic. Nice. Uh, Ringo Starr's kid was a drummer, um, it, but they're in their seventies and they're on tour still. It's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. But if you notice bands like that, they if they ever like replace any of the original members, they always get themselves a nice young drummer. Yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. the most like physically taxing part. You know, so you get yourself a kid who could, you know, play for three hours, and then, and then the rest of the guys are up there prancing around. I, I'm a drummer. I love it, man. But yeah, at this, I mean, even in my thirties, it's that's a workout. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, some guys, you look at it, it's like running a marathon. You know, and it's definitely something you have to. It's like exercise or working out you have to do it all the time to maintain it yeah and, absolutely. and not just be in constant pain i um again i don't know how anyone can do it at much of an older age and what we are uh i saw you post something that i meant to ask you on twitter but i'll just ask here you posted a video uh movie uh, that you were watching called coco d coco dot i've never heard or seen that <laughs> What it looks the you gotta look up the forever who's listening, it's K O K O hyphen D I K O K O hyphen D A. Uh the trailer looks trippy as fuck. What is that about, man? Yeah, it's a uh it's a Danish, I think, or Swedish movie. I had uh I had heard about it a couple years ago and saw the trailer and was like oh, when this comes out I gotta see this because it was right up my alley, kind of just like weird lynchian madness psychedelic trippy stuff and uh it was it's it's popped up on shutter recently and uh so i was real excited to watch that one it's it's a cool movie it's like i don't want to really give anything away but it's uh it's got an element of groundhog's day but it's also got this this really weird like backwards people terrorizing campers and it's uh yeah it's 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 interesting (laughs) um brennan is there anything that you want to cover before this or 
Do you about kinda... backwoods campers or no, I'm good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to watch it. It sounds fucked up. But... If you Do like you want... weird movies, it's definitely worth watching. It was a fun one. I'll check it out sometime, man. Um, Brent, you want to dive into what are you reading? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Joshua, what are what are you currently reading? Oh, man. I am literally currently reading the book I've been reading every night for the last week or so and desperately trying not to fall asleep during because I work long hours and by by the time I get in the bed, as soon as I open a book, it basically puts me to sleep. But I am That's reading... And I'm not I'm not even gonna remember what it's called. It's uh crap. Do you know who uh and I don't know if I'm gonna get his name right either. Uh S. Craig Zoller, I think his name is. He he directed that movie Bone Tomahawk and a movie called Dragged Across Concrete, and then also a movie called uh Cell Block Brawling Cell Block 99 with Vince Vaughn. Yeah, no, I've heard the name, and I, and I know a couple of those movies, yep. Yeah, yeah like, he, he has a shaved head. Vince Vaughn has a shaved head in that one. Yeah, he uh, he basically plays like a a con who goes back in jail undercover or something to like, I forget, but did, <laughs> did, it's like a, like a throwback to like just brutal like grindhouse crime movies kind of thing. Anyway, it's, I, he's a good director, and I, I like his stuff. And he's written a bunch of books in of in varying genres, but um, this is his most recent one. And I got a a galley on that galley, and I've been reading it. And it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of your traditional noir kind of thing, like modern day noir with you know strippers and and mob guys and stuff like that. And uh, I'm really enjoying it, but I do got to say it, it doesn't have it's it feels a little toned down compared to his movies because his movies are known for like some really insane over the top violence and like very stylized dialogue and stuff like that. And I thought it was going to be more of that. And the book is actually feels much more reserved. So, uh, yeah, but that's what I'm reading at the moment. I, I did just go on a really great run though because i i went back to work recently for the first time in like a year because of the pandemic so i, I had way more time to read and stuff and i i ran through a slew of really great things that are either just coming out or, or will be out soon and i read um uh the my heart is a chainsaw by stephen graham jones which was really fun I read the new Brian Evenson collection of short stories, which is called the burning glassy floor of hell. I believe <laughs> I, I have a hard time remembering titles sometimes, but uh, Brian Evenson is one of my favorite short story writers. There's just something about the way he does what he, he does is he writes. He's just very minimal bleak apocalyptic stories where like he he barely describes thing and things and just like there's these all these just like unknown things going on and you kind of gotta like piece together what's happened and it's, it's just the kind of thing that appeals to me 
the kind of thing that I'm always like, I want to write something like this, and then I try and fail miserably. <laughs> so he's I, definitely got his like very unique style. Um, yeah, I've only read a couple of his stories, but it's yeah, they, they, they're mind fucky a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, he's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, what else have I read? I read the, uh, what was it called? I'm so bad when I'm put on the spot and I read so many things. And then I'm like, when someone asks me what I read right recently, I'm just like, uh, yeah, I don't know. But that, those are, those are the handful of books I've read most recently. Oh, nice. Brennan, what are you reading? Um, I am just diving into, or just about to dive into The Cipher from Kathy Koja. Uh, I haven't read anything by her before. And, That's a good uh, one. That's a, a freaky book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm here and it's unique. Um, so I don't really know what I'm in for yet, but I'm diving into the fun hole. Um, and then I'm also reading Last Case at a Baggage Auction from, uh, I'm probably going to mess up his last name, but I believe it's Eric J. Gennard. Um, and I'm really liking this one. Um, I'm not quite halfway through it, but it's, uh, it, it has this, uh, you know, and maybe it's just because a lot of it takes place at an auction, but it has this really like fast paced, uh, narrative first person narrative to it that almost reminds me of like an auctioneer just like you know our the the stories getting just kind of bustled along from one event to the next but you know you don't have trouble following what's going on or anything like that it's just you don't you know you get to the end of a chapter and you're you know a couple paragraphs into the next one before you realize you hit a break and it's okay i'm halfway done because you know i can't put it down um so I, I'm enjoying that. Patrick, oh, how about you? That sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've read a couple of his shorts before, but this is this definitely has a different tone than um, than the short stories I've read by him. So I started, uh, this is my first Captain Coach, Velocities. Um, I'm two stories in. It's a latest collections. It's it's definitely interesting. I I haven't read enough to really get a super good feel for her voice, her writing voice yet, but I'm liking it so far. And uh, I'm starring two books, um, not tonight, but this week. Children of Chicago by Cena Palayo. And um, for our other show, for Brennan and my other show, along with Ken McKinley and a new co-host, uh, Will Beard, aka Kevin Wynn, we are. Uh, breaking down classic horror paperbacks called Unburying the Dead. So this is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Nice. I got some catching up to do because I uh, I hit a hiatus for quite a few years for not reading. So I've not read Shirley Jackson before. I'm very excited to read that. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I read that for the first time this past year as well. What'd you think? I, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Nice. Yeah, um, so we're going to be talking about that on uh, May May 1st, it comes out. For those that are unaware of what the show is, uh, Unburying the Dead, we exhume classic horror paperbacks. We have a basically a roundtable discussion about 
non-spoilers, and then we let you know when spoilers are coming. Um, the one that just aired today, April 1st, this is not a joke, is uh, episode three, Ron Kelly's Fear. My opinion, one of the best books I've written. Um, I would check it out if you get a moment. Uh, let's jump into, well, I don't think we talked about this, but what's on the what's on your plate for uh, next, the next book, the next project? Even though this one, while recording, has not come out yet. <laughs> um, I've been, you know, I, I have another screenplay to novel adaptation I've been working on on and off since I, I finished the paradox twins and um it's it's i'd say it's close to being done in that as far as a completed draft is done but it's something that i've really been tinkering with on and off and you know i'll go i'll go long periods of time without looking at it and then i'll come back to it just cu- trying to kind of get the form really where i want it because again i didn't want it to be just a straightforward adaptation of a straightforward story i kind of wanted to play with things in the novel form more than i could in the screenplay so it's uh it's definitely though it's more of a straightforward horror story it's uh i would even call it a haunted house story which is you know haunting of hill house it's like staple of horror way back from the beginning and so i figured you know i didn't even figure i would try my hand at that it just turned into a haunted house story and it's it the the kind of uh the inciting incident is actually based on something from my childhood when i was out with some friends exploring an abandoned house so still working on that hopefully you know polish it up i i don't know when though honestly i'm not i'm not giving myself a deadline i'm not really in a rush i don't want to you know i kind of don't like to work that way i don't i don't want to be one of those like novel a year guys where like you have to have a novel a year and then it kind of just makes it a job and i already got a job this is my hobby (laughs) I hear you. I just realized that Psycho and uh, The Haunting of Hill House both came out the same year, uh, 1959. That's, oh, wow. That's a hell of a year. to. I mean, those two alone. I don't know what else came out that year, but I don't know if it matters. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one, too. Yeah. So, you know what? That's interesting. You said that you don't care. Well, I'm putting words in your mouth. That your goal isn't to have one novel per year. Uh, they've really talked about that with other writers before so do you feel like there's this pressure on other authors where they feel like they need one or more uh, books out per year and if so what's your take on that i mean i definitely feel there's a pressure for people who want to make their living as a writer and people who get like a bigger publishing contract it's usually you know you see them churning out a book every year or two years and uh i think that's the nature of of writing to make money is you don't make a ton of money from one or two books when a an author really starts to make their money and i think i've heard 
I think Brian Keene talk about this is by building a catalog and having a back catalog to sell. And that's when a writer gets comfortable making their living as a writer and not kind of like living paycheck to paycheck or hand to mouth or whatever you want to call it. So, and for me, that that's not appealing to me because I already have a full-time job. I have a career and I kind of started writing, you know, for fun as a creative outlet. And of course I want to publish and I want people to buy it and like it and read it. And, you know, but I don't, I don't want it to become a job basically. Like if, if I was writing to survive, I think for me it would suck all the joy out of it. Hmm. And I, I also feel like too, the way I work is, uh, I feel like I'm a little on the slow side and I, I do a lot of like a lot of revising as I go. And I, I don't like, you know, schedules and deadlines when it comes to creative stuff. So, you know, it's for, it's not for me. It's definitely not for me. That's fair. It's definitely fair. Brennan, anything to, uh, reply there? No, I mean, I, I, I dig that. It's, it, it should be, uh, I don't know if fun is the right word I want to throw out there, but it, it, it's a hobby. It's, you know, you, if you're not relying on the income, then it shouldn't cause undue stress. And if the way that you can churn out your best work is to take your sweet time and, you know, edit and re-edit and then add a little more and then just go back at your own pace, you know, then what's wrong with that? Exactly my point. Yeah. Uh, where can people follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at at JC Cockrobin. Uh, I have a website, joshuachaplinski.com, which is pretty bare bones. There's also the website, unravelingtheparadox.com, which may or may not be somehow related to the Paradox Twins. (laughs) Or, and the, 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 the website, Unraveling the Paradox, which is mentioned in the book. And uh, yeah, and you could get the book directly from Clash, or you could find it on Amazon and any number of online venues that sell books. Uh, any final thoughts, eh, Joshua? Any comments? Any plugs? Anything you want to say before we call it a wrap? Uh, no, uh, just uh, thanks to you guys for having me and. Thanks to everyone who's kind of plugged and reviewed the book so far. And it just, it, it, it really means a lot. And, you know, it's like, I'm surprised the, the, how warm it makes you feel just, just to have, you know, see a few kind, thoughtful words, you know, about Mm. something that you've put so much effort into. So I really appreciate all the people who've been, you know, supporting and uh, being encouraging. So thank you guys. It's awesome. Brennan. Nothing to add. Thank you for your time, Joshua. Really appreciate you uh, giving up a couple hours on your Thursday night. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Of course. I, I, I echo that. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Brennan. As always, thank you listeners. 
Stay tuned for this upcoming Monday where me and Brennan talk to Wab, Wab ugh, can't talk. Wab Gishig Rice, aka Wab. Talk about his uh, recent book, uh, Moon of the Crusted Snow. And uh, it's it's an interesting conversation. We dive into a lot of different neat and uh, few things we learned ourselves. So thanks again for tuning in. You have many choices. We're glad that you picked us. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.